0: Live from New York City. It's the Gary Knoll show. The and now your host Gary Noel.
1: First of all, Happy Thanksgiving, however you celebrate it. And once again, we're here. Uh, We're not taking a day off. We're providing you with a lot of thoughtful information. And I believe that if no other way to celebrate is to celebrate a day where people are actively seeking opportunities to create peace in the world. In this case, we're going to hear at the beginning of our program from just two of the most knowledgeable, honest, objective scholars on what is happening in the world, especially in the Middle East, and also in Russia and Ukraine. And we're playing by the same book of neocon hegemonic principles. We want something that country has, whether it's its natural resources or influence in the area, in which case... We justify it by propagandizing, having the CIA control the media with its talking points, the media without questioning, obediently going ahead and sharing those, till we create the idea that there's all good on one side and all bad on the other. These are the people that have to be destroyed. And if people get hurt in the process or killed, well, it's not our fault. We've heard that so many times. But it is our fault. So let's see what Jeff, Professor Jeffrey Sachs at, at uh, Columbia University... And Professor John Mersheimer have to say, they're looking at a missed opportunity for peace. We believe that we all need to know the deeper, larger backstory. Let's go to it now.
2: We we discussed, and I, you know, you led the discussion of this, and uh, I think the world is <laughs> really uh, in your debt about the, the rationality of Russia's reaction to NATO enlargement. But let me ask you about the flip side, and you cover it in the book, in part, the rationality of the U.S. decision to expand NATO. Uh, Now, it fits your description that, uh, especially when Clinton uh, made the original key decisions after a lot of internal debate in the Clinton administration about whether There should be an enlargement of NATO. After all, uh, the Soviet Union, which was the original reason for NATO, no longer existed. Uh, Russia was supposedly a friend. And uh, many people felt, uh, and most famously, uh, the the great uh, scholar, diplomat, historian George Kennan, why stir up things uh, with NATO enlargement when we're just, in a fragile way, trying to establish normalcy Uh, of relations. But Clinton went ahead and decided that NATO would enlarge. And during his administration, it was uh, originally to three countries of Central Europe, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. How do you uh, assess that? And then was it rational in 2008, and was it done rationally by George Bush Jr. at that point, to continue the push of NATO to Ukraine and to Georgia, given what Bill Burns and others were saying, that this is going to be extraordinarily dangerous. Does that fit the rationality uh, uh, criteria?
3: Well, let me start by going back to the 1990s. Then we can talk about the 2008 decision in light of the Burns Memo. In the 1990s, and most people have forgotten this, uh, there was a huge battle uh, inside the country, uh, and certainly inside the Clinton administration, on whether to expand NATO. It was basically a battle between realists on one side and liberals on the other side. And the realists, and there were many of them, including the Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, George Kennan, as you said, and others, who had what I would call a realist set of theories that informed their view of the policy of NATO expansion, and they argued that if you expand NATO eastward and you have an open door policy, right, and you just, which means you're going to continue expanding NATO, this is going to and, blow and, up and in and your uh, face.
2: Op- open door also, uh, just to help the, uh, the the listeners understand, is a, a NATO idea and a U.S. idea that that. Uh, NATO and the prospective candidate can discuss enlargement, but no other third party, in this case Russia, has any say. So, if NATO and Ukraine are discussing NATO, the open door policy says none of Russia's business. Uh, right. As 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 a premise uh, or you know almost a formal NATO doctrine, it it says on the NATO website, no third country should interfere in that deliberation.
3: Right, which is, in effect, saying that Russia's security concerns don't matter at all. Right. It it just doesn't matter. The argument is Ukraine has a right to pursue any foreign policy it wants, regardless of what the effect is on Russia. This is not a smart way of thinking about how to do foreign policy. But nevertheless, uh, in the 1990s, there were lots of people who wanted to expand NATO. And these were the liberals, right? And they believed that balance of power politics was basically dead. They also believed the Russians were so weak that it it was not necessary to to contain Russia. It's very important to understand that NATO expansion was initially not designed to contain Russia because Russia was a basket case, as you know much better than I do, in the 1990s. You didn't have to contain it. What they wanted to do, the liberals who carried the day was they wanted to take the various institutions in Western Europe, like the EU and NATO, and spread them eastward. And they wanted to make Eastern Europe look like Western Europe. They wanted to create a giant zone of peace, a giant zone of peace, prosperity, and happiness. And that was the liberal thinking. But again, the realists, people like Cannon and Bill Perry, said that, you know, this is going to bite you in the hiney in the long term because the Russians are not going to be happy uh, with NATO expansion. Anyway, the liberals carried the day. And once the train left the station, it was impossible to stop it. So not only did you have the 1990 tranche of expansion that you described under the Clinton administration, in 2004, you had an even bigger tranche. Then in 2008, Yeah, that
2: that was seven countries, just to remind people, the three Baltic states, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, and Slovenia in 2004. That's getting pretty close to Russia. You know, you've got the Baltic states, you have the Black Sea states of Romania and Bulgaria
3: getting close. Right. But Ukraine, it was in 2008 when they said, NATO said, that Ukraine and Georgia would become part of NATO. And this, of course, is where the Russians drew a red line. They said, this is not happening. We couldn't do enough to stop the previous ones. The previous ones mattered, but not that much. This one really matters because Ukraine is a piece of real estate that is of prime strategic importance to the Russians. And the Russians were just not going to let that happen. So your question, Jeff, is was it rational for the uh, Bush administration uh, to push for NATO expansion? I would argue it was. I think there's no question that the Burns memo said the Russians were going to resist. But the Russians had said they were adamantly opposed to the 1999 expansion. They were adamantly opposed to the 2004 expansion, and we just shoved it down their throat. And I believed, I believe that the Bush administration and subsequent administrations thought that, yeah, the Russians are not happy, Burns is correct, but it doesn't matter because we're the United States, we're super powerful, and we're going to shove it down their throat. That's yeah. one dimension of the argument. The other dimension is that you had a number of people, and I would put Mike McFaul, who was the ambassador to Moscow in 2014, when the crisis broke out, had people like Mike McFaul who believed that the Russians would ultimately understand that the United States was a benign hegemon. Mike believes that the United States is a benign hegemon. He believes that we're not a threat to Russia and that Russia should understand that. And at the time, he believed that they would understand it. So you had these two logic at place that led us uh, to pursue this foolish policy. By the way, I just
2: uh, was with a very senior diplomat. Again, I I don't want to mention names who uh, was discussing with a senior American diplomat, one of the most important. And the American official said, uh, how do we convince to this day, after this war has been raging, how do we convince Russia that NATO is not a threat? <laughs> you just feel? Are you kidding? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but this comes to a, a question for me because I think it's a i i think it's a a, a very s- strong point of the book that I like, but also a question mark that I also have. You define. You, you, and Sebastian uh, Rosado define rationality in a in a very good way that I like, which is that it it is uh, that there is a deliberative process, uh, and that uh, the uh, decisions are based on a credible or reasonable theory of the world, and this means that uh, their rationality is not defined by some particular standard of exactly how the world works. The world's uh, uncertain. There are different theories and so on. And your standard of rationality is rather loose and, I think, rather appropriate, frankly. I think it's a very clever way to define this, which is that it's, it's the process and that you're in touch with reason. Now, having said that, uh, there are better theories of the world and worse theories of the world. Uh, and if you were looking back in the two in the 1990s during the Clinton decision about NATO enlargement, uh, I would have gone with uh, George Kennan as a much wiser person uh, than uh, than uh, Albright or, or uh, Dick Holbrook uh, who were pushing the NATO enlargement. And uh, similarly uh, with uh, Bill Perry, who was uh, Clinton's. Uh, Defense Secretary, he was aghast at NATO enlargement. He thought about resigning in protest. Yeah. He just thought it was a terrible, terrible idea. So you define the decision in, in the 1990s as rational because it was deliberative. There was a debate. There was a plausible theory. It was this uh, liberal hegemonic theory. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, it, it fits. And I would subscribe to that. In 2008, now you've explained to me how you could consider this rational, because the rational theory at this point is, well, the Russians don't like it, but they haven't done anything the first two rounds, so that's a plausible theory of the world. But I would say it's a kind of reckless <laughs> approach. Uh, in 2008, I remember being called by a very senior European uh, at the time saying, what is your president doing? You know. Are you kidding to Ukraine, no less? So there was an added step at that point that made it really willfully provocative. Then in February 2014, uh, you have pointed out, I completely concur with you, that the U.S. participated actively in a coup uh, against a uh, a Ukrainian pro-Russian president who wanted neutrality for Ukraine. At what point does the decision making become irrational in your view, if at all? Or is this this move to war rationality all the way, but just a bad a bad approach? I mean how would you how would you characterize in this spectrum of rational and irrational the progression of US policymaking?
3: Let me reinforce your argument and then try to counter it. Uh, To reinforce it, you want to remember that in April 2008 at the Bucharest summit, when we said Ukraine would become part of NATO, we also said Georgia would become part of NATO. Right? So, April 2008, we say Georgia and Ukraine become part of NATO. In August of 2008, a few months later, a war breaks out between Georgia and Russia. And that war is precipitated by, in large part, by the announcement that Georgia will become part of NATO. I couldn't agree more. Right, right. So that that reinforces your argument. You sort of say to yourself, uh, they've now seen that the Russians are serious. Shouldn't they back off? Uh, Now let me cut in the other direction. And uh, I mean, I think that If you go back to when the war broke out on February 22nd, excuse me, February 24th of 2022, the vast majority of people were shocked that we had a war in Europe. The vast majority of people did not believe that this could happen. It's just unthinkable. And I believe that we did not think that there would be a war we wouldn't have over ukraine what happened over georgia and we just thought we could shove nato expansion down their throat uh and we were wrong of course but it's easy in retrospect to say we were wrong beforehand there were lots of people who thought we would get away with it not you No, not me. I agree with that. I agree with (laughs) that, right? Because you knew already in
2: 2014 this was extraordinarily reckless and dangerous.
3: Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying that, you know, the argument that we end up making in the book, which is a tricky argument, is we believe, the two of us, that we have a set of theories, realist theories about how the world works that we think are the best theories. And that's why we were opposed to NATO expansion, certainly into Ukraine. But the fact is, as you know, as an economist, there are always a number of competing theories out there and separating them and saying which one is the best and convincing other people of that is very difficult to do. And you don't want to end up in a situation where you say, my theory is the only correct theory, and if you act according to my theory, you develop a policy that's based on my theory, it's rational. And if you develop a policy that's based on other people's theories, which are in the marketplace and have a lot of cachet, they're irrational. You kind of don't want to go down that road. So you end up... But it, it,
2: it is interesting. There are two different axes we could think about: the rational versus irrational, and the smart versus dumb, uh, or <laughs> or 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 the reckless versus prudent. Uh, and uh, you know, by uh, twenty twenty-one, it wasn't so hard to figure out uh, that NATO enlargement was an aggravant that could be a disaster. And yet to that point, the U.S. wouldn't pull back and couldn't pull back. I, I mean, absolutely was against. And just to say you know, personally, John, when when Putin put on the table uh, on December 17th, 2021, a draft U.S.-Russia yeah. security agreement uh, that was really based on two ideas, one, I mean, it was It had a lot in it uh, that we would never accept, but, uh, you know, rolling back of uh, NATO. But it was basically no more NATO enlargement, and you don't get to put the missiles where you want to put them uh, near our borders. Uh, And we should agree on those two premises. I called the White House, and I begged,
0: you know, there's a
2: lot in there. Negotiate. Negotiate over NATO. Uh, and uh, I was told, no, no, we're not going to have a war over that. You know, it's not about to happen. I said, if it's not about to happen, say it. Don't don't allow this to explode into a war. And they went right ahead and formally delivered to Russia the, uh, the view that NATO enlargement is none of your business. Now, I would call that at that point... It, Irrational, but if you want to call it rational, I'd call it exceedingly dumb and imprudent. Uh, so I just, maybe it is a different axis of evaluation. But by December 2021, the United States
3: could have avoided this war, but chose not to. Yeah, but just again, to reinforce your point, and uh, the war breaks out in February 20. 20- 22. And then shortly thereafter, negotiations are taking place between the Ukrainians and the Russians. And Putin and Zelensky are deeply involved. And it looks in March and early April of 2022, like they're going to reach a deal that Zelensky and Putin will be able to put an end to the war. And the Americans mainly, but also the British move in, scotch the negotiations, tell Zelensky to walk away, and the end result is the war is continuing to this day, and it's going to be a total disaster for Ukraine. It is already a total disaster for Ukraine. It's just horrible what's happened to Ukraine, and it's going to be a disaster for the United States as well because it's going to be a major foreign policy defeat. So one could, just to reinforce your point, argue that we were remarkably foolish in the run-up to the war, and in the immediate aftermath of the start of the war, right? Uh, And one might even argue that that's not rational. I've not thought long and hard about this, and it's just not clear enough what exactly happened before the war started, you know, in December, January, before the war started, for me to make a firm decision on whether this was rational or not. I'll just take it a step further, Jeff. I think one could make the uh, argument—we don't have enough data now to know for sure—one could make the argument that we provoked the Russians, that we thought we could beat them. Uh, You know, you talked about the December 17th letter that the Russians sent to NATO and to President Biden it's really quite remarkable the extent to which we just dismissed this letter. The Russians were were trying to avoid a war, and we just dismissed it. Then, as I said, you had negotiations after the war started. You would have thought that we would have moved in and done everything we could to work with the Ukrainians and the Russians to shut this one down. Instead, we do exactly the opposite. Were we thinking that a war wouldn't be such a bad thing because we could actually beat the Russians. It's not just an argument that they're so weak that they can't resist NATO expansion. This is an argument that they're so weak. And with economic sanctions as the magic weapon, right, we can bring them to their knees. So there's no reason to negotiate. I Uh, think that that
2: that is, you know, another theory that was, one could say plausible or not. I found it, dubious in general because of my uh, long experience watching sanctions not work but the view was that uh, cutting russia off from the international or the dollar banking system the so-called swift uh, clearance system was the the nuclear sanction uh, not not nuclear in the literal sense but that it was so devastating it would bring the russian economy to its knees uh, and so i think they had theories And maybe, in fact, they, yes, we'll beat them now. They'll, they're in our trap. Uh, And it was one miscalculation after another in that way, or a game of chicken that they'll never dare to do it, uh, given the threats that they face.
3: Yeah. And just again, to reinforce your argument, the war starts, the negotiations in Istanbul fail. And over the course of 2022, The Ukrainians score a number of important tactical victories against the Russians in Kharkiv and in Hyrsan. And General Milley, in the fall of that year, 2022, says this is the high-water mark for the Ukrainians. Maybe it's time to try to cut a deal, because this is the best the Ukrainians are going to get now. And again, the administration scotches any yeah. talk of negotiations, and they encourage the Ukrainians to continue the war. Uh, so you really do have a sense looking at this. And again, these are preliminary judgments because we don't have a whole heck of a lot of data. But you really do have the sense that we thought a war wouldn't be the end of the world uh, with the Russians because we could beat them. And then once the war happens, uh, we don't want to shut it down because we think we can beat them again. Uh, but of course that all turns around this year
2: 2023 let me let me uh, in our uh, closing minutes there's so much i'd love of course to talk hours with you and uh, I, and people would love to listen uh, as they do uh, to hours of uh, of of your thoughts on this but to turn to a point that's not really so much part of this book and it's a, a major question that you and i have discussed and and debated to some extent and that's where is diplomacy in all of this uh you know most of the decisions you analyze are one-sided decisions uh, a government takes an action anticipating rightly or wrongly the actions of others but there's very little diplomacy in your treatment in the sense of engagement with the other side to shape the outcomes or to shape the decisions and This comes back to your justly famous book that I have a problem with uh, called The Tragedy of Great Power Politics because it just doesn't sit right with me that we accept that a system is tragic because it could be ultimately tragic and we need to, in my opinion, find the solution to the tragedy, not accept the tragic outcome. And to explain to the readers your uh underlying theory is that in our uh world in which there is no higher uh uh, political authority than nation states nation states are inherently uh feeling extremely vulnerable about their survival about the threats from others and the great powers are therefore inevitably jostling with each other And because of this intense struggle for survival that they feel and that they're rationally acting on, uh, there's very little trust, very little scope for diplomacy and real chance for, quote, rational war breaking out on both sides uh, because that's the rational thing to do with a a foe, uh, which is uh, also thinking rationally and of course it brings to mind the famous prisoners dilemma where the two sides end up being ultimately utterly non-cooperative because that's the that's the strategy that is rational in fact if you're if you can't bind the other side and you can't bind the other side in international affairs and so just to uh, put it uh, in, in perhaps too long-winded a way uh, it, Your vision in that earlier book, and it's not so much explicit in how states think, but it is in the cases, the decision making is very much within the state, not on the basis of either international institutions like the UN or the Security Council of the United Nations, or even in bilateral or multilateral diplomacy of other kinds, to shape the environment, but rather it is a struggle, high risk, high stakes, and ultimately uh, prone to tragedy. Uh, So uh, I wanted to ask you about that. Is there a place for diplomacy? Is there such thing as peacemaking for two potentially belligerent uh, foes? And is there ultimately a solution to this tragic risk, especially in a nuclear age.
3: Well, my argument, Jeff, as you described it, is that great powers operate in a fundamentally competitive world. They compete with each other for power and they have no choice because, as you said, there is no higher authority that can rescue them if they get into trouble. You know, if you dial 911 in the international system, there's nobody at the other end. And in a world like that, you want to be really powerful, because if you're really powerful, then your chances of surviving are great. If you're weak in that kind of world, to go to the Chinese case, you suffer the century of national humiliation. So there are really powerful incentives for each state to be super powerful. But of course, it's a zero-sum game and therefore very competitive. Now, the question that you ask is, where's the room for cooperation? Where's the room for diplomacy in there? And I actually believe there is a lot of room for diplomacy, and there is even room for cooperation in this fundamentally competitive world. The fact is that you can have two great powers that compete with each other that also have mutual interests. Uh, to give you an example, during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union obviously competed with each other fiercely for security, but they oftentimes cooperated, and the best example is nuclear proliferation. They got together, mainly starting in the late 60s, and put together a set of institutions, we used to call it the proliferation regime, that was designed to shut down proliferation, because both the United States and the Soviet Union had a vested interest in preventing proliferation. So they cooperated, and that meant they had to do a lot of diplomacy. So there is room for diplomacy. To take the present situation with regard to China and the United States, Look, there's going to be a lot of economic cooperation between China and its neighbors and China and the United States moving forward. Uh, furthermore, they're going to have a vested interest in dealing with things like climate problems, uh, dealing with proliferation, and so forth and so on. So there will be ample room for cooperation and diplomacy. But nevertheless, it's very important to understand This cooperation takes place underneath the shadow of competition, and that is a very dangerous competition. And my argument, which you don't like and I fully understand, is that there's no escaping this tragedy. We're stuck in an iron cage. And again, it's because there's no higher authority that can save states if they get into trouble. John, uh, we're at the end of the hour. I'm going to let you have the last word on
2: that, but uh, I'm going to uh, uh, look forward to continuing the discussion. Uh, Your analysis is scintillating and fascinating and crucial. Uh, uh, I can also add that uh, back uh, uh, when uh, the tragedy of uh, great power politics appeared, which is 2001, am I correct, or 2002? 2001. 2001. Yes. Uh, At that point, there was very little tension between the U.S. and China. And you write in the book, wait a minute, as China rises, the tension will rise. So you also predicted that very, very clearly. Uh, And uh, this is uh, something to note, you know, as a description I would look at it and say, no, why do we need tension? We're friends. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going to cooperate. Uh, but you uh, rightly called it, although I find it tragic and extremely worrisome, but we're going to leave it at that uh, at, at the moment. Uh, your your new book with Sebastian Rosado, How States Think, is really a must read for everybody uh, that is interested in global affairs. And I think that's everybody now because uh, we are in in the midst of uh, very tumultuous and very important times. And we're looking to you, John, for uh, your wisdom and your ideas uh, and your thoughts. And I want to thank you so much for uh, being with us today on Book Club with Jeffrey Sachs.
3: My pleasure, Jeff. And thank you very much for having me on. I enjoyed it. Congratulations on the new book.
1: And now, what is happening in Ukraine? Poland is saying they're kind of done with Ukraine. Well, what's that mean? In order to understand this, Clayton Morris, who redacted, is giving us their perspective. And it's an important perspective to know who's working with whom, who's supporting whom, and how that ultimately might mean that those in Ukraine will say, we can't win, we're only losing, We've lost an entire generation of young men. The average age of the soldier fighting for Ukraine is 43 because they caused over 450,000 young men and women to die needlessly. Let's hear what he has to say
4: in this clip. Well, is Europe finally waking up and saying enough is enough and turning away from Ukraine? What about Poland specifically? Over the weekend, large protests, part of their Independence Day celebrations, signs saying enough and down with the U.S. Israelization or U.S. Israelization of Poland's foreign policy. Are they saying enough is enough? There's been a number of signs in Poland over the past few weeks against Ukraine and against the foreign policy in Ukraine. So, what is going on in Poland? This is quite a shift, it seems to me, or those of us from the outside. Mike Krupa is a journalist, host of Votum TV in Warsaw, Poland, and he joins us now from uh, the getting more uh, more cold by the minute up there in Warsaw. Uh, nice to see you as winter is starting to creep in on Poland. Mike, good to see you.
5: Good to see you. Yeah, we're getting the uh, Hunt for an October opening scene vibe slowly here in Poland. Not yet snow, but definitely getting cold. Great to be back on the show. Well,
4: you can buy some of that uh, American natural gas at 50% over the price tag uh, now that after we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. So you have that to look forward to. That's capitalism in action for you.
5: Well, we're just waiting for that freedom gas and I hope the uh, as we mentioned before the show the Hans Molman, the Ukrainian Hans Molman who was apparently accused of doing this with a bunch of his uh, teammates on a sailboat. Uh, I kind of feel sorry for the guy because the way they're dumping Zelensky right now borders on, you know, on the tragic but in a way it's also humorous. So, we're just waiting for that freedom gas to come and for the uh for the for the money to get into the coffers where
4: they need to be. The freedom gas. I love that. So, let's talk about Poland. I you know, noticing these protests over the weekend, it was pretty Pretty startling to see these signs that, and I might have butchered the phrasing of this, but these signs read, stop the U.S. Israelization of Poland's foreign policy. What does that mean?
5: Yep, you got that right. Well, what happened was uh, every November 11th on our Independence Day, uh, there's this huge rally in Warsaw, which has been taking place since 2010. It's called the Independence Day March. And it's sort of a gathering of uh, right-wing organizations, nationalists, patriots, and conservatives who basically want to rally that day in favor of Poland independence. So it usually has Euroskeptic. It's got this Euroskeptic line embedded in it since the beginning. Um, but it's very ecumenical in the sense that anybody who considers themselves to be a patriot and against the European Union can attend. So what happened at this year's march was one of the factions that took part. Uh, they held, they held these huge banners. One said poll exit," as in Poland has to exit the European Union, and the other one read, as you mentioned, "Stop U.S. realization of the Polish raison d'état," which basically means stop being subservient to Israel and the United States in our foreign policy. Now that. Uh, triggered the reaction from the uh, Israeli ambassador in Poland, one uh, Yakov Livny, who wrote on X that uh, I quote: "Stop use U.S. U.S. realization of the Polish raison d'état called these patriots on Polish Independence Day in Warsaw. They fight against three evils: the U.S., the EU, and Israel. No words." Well, my comment to that was he forgot about one other evil, which is Ukraine, because we're also fighting against that evil. But uh, yeah, it got him triggered, and I, it was it was actually a fairly a uh, public statement made by one of the factions of the Confederation Party, which actually enlarged its parliamentary presence during the elections of October the 15th. Uh, yesterday, we had the swearing in of the new parliament in Poland. We had the election of the new Speaker of the House and the Vice Speakers, or as we call them, Marshals in Poland. And the leader of the faction that had those banners uh, during the march is one Grzegorz Brown. He's an MP. And his faction in the Confederation Party was enlarged by three more MPs, so I guess he became stronger in Parliament. Um, but yeah, it did get it did get noticed by the international media. Obviously, you had the usual calls of anti-Semitism and so on. But in the current context, in the context of Ukraine, in the context of what's happening in Gaza, uh, I think that was a very prescient banner, and I think uh, we need more of those in Poland.
4: So, what do you, I want to drill down on what this means because I think it's very childish. Uh, people throw around anti-Semitism. That means they want to shut down conversation about it. I think people who just throw that term out there, it's the same thing by just yelling out, Putin apologist. They don't really know what they're talking about. They probably haven't read a book in the past six months in their lives. Uh, So I I always discount those arguments because it shuts down conversation. But what's really at the heart of this foreign policy debate there? Is it that they're tired of being bullied by Israel and the United States being told what to do. Um, obviously, the United States, of course, has multiple you know military bases. NATO has set up uh, military bases in in Poland almost like an aircraft carrier, the way that RFK Jr. described uh, Israel to the United States essentially an aircraft carrier for United States foreign policy. So can you drill down on that? What it, where what does the anger mean? What is for people to go out on the street and to protest? There's got to be something deeper there?
5: Well, the anger is uh, that, you know, Paradoxically, on Independence Day, uh, we are celebrating in a country that is not fully independent when it should be independent because any form of subservience uh, to a foreign capital or any form of foreign military presence on your soil automatically discounts you as an independent country, You know, by simple definition, by simple logic. You are not dependent if your foreign policy is basically dictated or semi-dictated by people in a different capital or overseas, for example. And I think uh, military presence on your soil military presence is the ultimate sign of you not being independent so i think that's what they were hammering at that on independence day we want to show that poland should be independent we can be partners with everybody but the fact that our government is so subservient to instructions coming from think tanks or the state department or the pentagon and sometimes in many cases also subservient to the foreign policy uh, priorities of uh tel aviv let's not forget that in 2017 there was a huge anti-iranian uh, conference which took place in Poland, I think it was in uh, in January 2017, Mike Pompeo arrived. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rudy Giuliani actually made a speech in Warsaw Square, uh, where he basically you know, talked about destroying the uh, so-called Iranian regime, and there were actually representatives of the terrorist organization Mujahideen Khalq present, who were also calling for the abolition of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So. There are many cases, you know, America is obviously the big enchilada because, you know, we can consider the Polish Republic to be a satellite state of the United States, unfortunately, but because of that, there are also inroads being made by the Israeli authorities where they also tend to see the Polish authorities, you know, uh, not distinguishing whether they're left wing or right wing uh, and trying to tell them what to do in terms of internal Polish policy, but also foreign policy, as we saw with regards to, to Iran.
4: Also, there was criticism from Poland to the former Polish Western territories in Ukraine and criticism of the Ukrainian government and their handling of those former Polish territories in Western Ukraine. You and I have talked over the past year about what will happen to Western Ukraine once this war is over. Will it be uh, absorbed by Poland once again? what will be left of Ukraine if it continues to throw men and resources against the Russian wall? What will Poland do? So can you explain the criticism? Number one, I think it was around Nazis specifically, but it was about the handling there. But also what will happen to Western Ukraine under in the future here if Zelensky is pushed out?
5: Well, one of the big problems that we've had with uh, Western Ukraine, or what used to be Poland, basically, is the fact that during the Volhynia massacres, which took place in the early 1940s, for 1943, especially, where over 200,000 Poles were murdered by the Ukrainian nationalists and their allies, uh, under the tutelage, obviously, of Nazi Germany, a lot of the victims of those crimes have still not been dug up from their graves and exhumated. So, because we want to conduct these exhumations as a Polish state, We've been asking for this the Ukrainian side for some time now. The Ukrainians are refusing to let the uh, Polish inspectors and the archaeologists to go in there and dig those and dig those bodies up and give them a proper burial. Burial. So that's one of the things that is a sort of uh, a sort of a dividing line between Warsaw and uh, Kiev. And that's one of the things that's become very public in recent years, when we, recent months, I would say, because you know we're sending all this money and and equipment to Ukraine. And we're not allowed to properly bury the dead that were murdered as part of the genocide conducted in volhynia Now, the question of what becomes of Western Ukraine is still a very open question because that all depends on who will govern Kiev in the next couple of months, whether that will be Zaluzhny, whether that'll still be Zelensky, or whether that'll be somebody who overthrows one and the other and comes to some sort of compromise with the Russians whereby they will not feel compelled to cross the Dnieper River. But let's say realistically speaking that the russians do not and i think that's what's going to happen they're not going to cross the dnieper the kiev regime is going to collapse and we're going to have a rump state in western ukraine i think we're going to have a situation similar to what we had in kosovo in the 1990s so we're going to have a lot of these azov battalion type guys running around with a lot of guns a lot of weaponry. they'll be very reminiscent of what we saw in kosovo with the so-called kosovo liberation army which was sponsored from bottom from top to bottom by the Central Intelligence Agency. And at one point they were designated a terrorist organization, but when they found out he could, they could be useful against Slobodan Milosevic, they were used you know, uh, with, by the deep <laughs> states of right. the West against uh, Yugoslavia. So I'm afraid that we might have literally on our borders, a chaotic semi-terrorist narco state full of weapons. And that's just gonna generate not only your refugee problems, which we're already seeing in Poland, but national security problems of the most profound characters.
1: And our last clip is a little different. Um, It's about Gavin Newsom trying to revise history of his COVID lockdowns and hypocrisy. And uh, he's being called out as a sociopath by Adam Carell being interviewed. I think you'll find this of interest. Let's go to the clip.
6: Speaking of Gavin Newsom, he's out there trying to rewrite his COVID history, truly one of the worst in the nation, possibly the worst, on the lockdowns about which you were very public- And he's doing two things, saying, we did way better than we did poorly. We had way more successes than we had mistakes. And by the way, anything you don't like was the result of local government in California. Not me. It wasn't me. Here's a flavor of an interview he gave with Fox 11 anchor uh, Elix Michelson in SOT 10.
0: What do you think was the biggest lesson learned in terms of what we did wrong that maybe you would do differently the next time
6: around?
4: I'm
7: not consumed by what we did wrong. I'm consumed a little bit more by what we did right. I mean, we led the nation in terms of, I mean, there's no large state that outperformed California on a per capita basis. The number of people lost their lives in California is substantially lower in places like Texas and Florida. We had less learning loss than states like Florida and elsewhere. So we outperformed the rest of the nation in that respect. At the time, we didn't know what we didn't know. And we're experts, we're geniuses. In hindsight, though, we have a report that we're looking forward to publishing on areas where we could have proved to substantively answer that question, not emotionally answer that question, through an objective lens, not a partisan lens.
6: Oh, my Lord. Let me just give you the second defense, because it speaks to how anything you didn't like, that wasn't me. The school closures, that was those local local mayors. I ceded all control to them. Listen.
5: Schools shut down too
7: long. I mean, in certain parts of the state, in certain parts of the state, they were open. Yeah. Uh, and they, we gave local control, the local control funding formula. It's a constitutional construct. It allows localism. And we advanced localism. We didn't have command and control. We allowed that local control. And in some cases, it was, yes, they waited too long. In other cases, they didn't. It's an interesting fact, isn't it, that states like Florida are out there saying, we got we opened up earlier, and yet they did worse. Mm in academic achievement. You have to, I think, come out of this with a sense of humility, absolutely, but also a little grace, uh, that California tended to do a little bit better uh, than most other states.
6: I mean, like literally every word of that was a lie.
0: Yes, total revisionist history. Well, let's just think about it. So you're saying states where they shut schools down and kept kids at home, like California, the kids did better academically at home than they did in states that were free that did not close the schools. Well, in that case, why are kids at school right now? Why not just shut all the schools so they can stay home and get more learning in than states that let the kids go to school? Because that's essentially what he said. I know he can't do math. And I know we don't keep track of math scores in California. But if you're doing the math you're saying okay so the longer and the harder you lock down the more the kids flourish academically that's number 1 number 2 this guy is a goddamn sociopath i talked to him i stared into the eye of the beast for an hour and a half on my podcast and all he does is lie he's sleep he's he's like puts brill cream on his teeth. I don't know why more idiots don't understand who this guy is. I lived in California. They shut down the beaches. They arrested people for paddle boarding in the harbor. They shut down all the beach volleyball courts. By the way, being outdoors, vitamin D, exercise, sunshine, could have been the best thing for you during COVID. But no, he locked them all up in their apartments. This guy's a sociopathic, tyrannical dictator, and nobody should listen to a goddamn word this idiot says.
6: (laughs) Tell us how you really feel. The numbers are actually...
0: He's a liar. And by the way, he didn't believe COVID for 10 minutes. He was out eating. And I think you can check the timeline. When he was at the French Laundry, which is the most expensive place you can eat, In California, with 28 of his closest friends, arm in arm, banging elbows, no mask, eating indoors. The following week, he shut down outdoor dining based on zero science in California. Zero Mm. science. He never believed in COVID.
6: He did, he did want school lockdowns. And at the same time he was pushing them for everyone else's kids, he sent his four kids to private school which was open, so his kids got to go to school while he kept all the other kids who are going to public school in California away from their teachers, away from in-person learning, which we know uh, was was of course better for the children to be in school. So he, it's of course a double standard.
0: Well, and the teachers' unions are in the back pocket of the Democrats, and they're going to dictate to the Democrats what they want and the teachers unions are corrupt and they're cowards. And so they just wanted to stay home. So they just told all the Democrats who were in charge of California or Chicago or wherever they happen to be in charge, uh, we're staying home and we wanna stay home. Who doesn't wanna stay home? But Gavin Newsom's revisionist history on his tyrannical COVID lockdowns are insane. And by the way, why do revisionist history if you were right? If you were so much better than Florida, if you're so much better than Texas, then why do you need to go back and tweak the past? Just tell us what you did. And by the way, it's insulting for anyone who lived in California because they saw the schools close, they saw the playgrounds close, they saw the churches close, they saw the beaches close. I mean, these guys are sociopaths. I saw Eric Swalwell on a news show about three weeks ago and he's like the democrats well let me tell you about the democrats we're the party that if some airborne virus sweeps the land we're the ones who are trying to open main street open schools open churches like oh my god said, the churches and schools you're the ones or you're the ones who locked everyone down and got everyone Addicted to fentanyl and suicidal well, for a year and a half. You
6: know. What Gavin Newsom did. We've covered yes. at length his shutdown of the churches there and how he was on them. He got federal help in sniffing them out underground uh, investigators inside churches to see if people were wearing their masks and keeping social distancing. The feds are still going after some of them. Bill Malugin of Fox News tweeted out a reaction saying. This guy repeatedly shut down California businesses in 20 and 21. He issued stay at home orders. By the way, he definitely issued mask mandates and vaccine mandates for all the schools, which he did close. And he's doing something similar to what we saw Andrew Cuomo do, um, who's also trying to wiggle out of his authoritarian streak during covid, which is they're saying, well, I didn't order them closed. Yeah, I, I left it to the locals. What they did was issue these, quote, like color coded tiers that decided who could open and who couldn't, and then stayed in the red the entire time and and got on the schools who didn't listen. That's, of course, what he was doing. Um, and then, of course, sent his own kids to in-person learning at private school while the public schools in Sacramento County or all around him remained closed. Overnight curfews, closing of the businesses, and so on. Obviously, though, he's running for office. There's zero chance for him to be doing this revisionist history if this guy were not running for office. And- I don't care. We'll see how he manages to get Joe Biden off the ballot. Right now, RFK is polling at 22% of the Democrat Party, Like 22%. So good luck getting him out of the way. Uh, I don't think there's some love affair for Gavin Newsom that's being tamped down right. I really don't. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe they're more progressive than I realize. But I think, you know, old school liberals are not in love with the crazy ass far left progressive policies that Gavin Newsom has forced on Californians. And once they get a close look at that guy I think they'll go rushing to RFKJ. They'll rush anywhere other than Gavin Newsom. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think?
0: Well, I think COVID let us see everyone for who they were and what they wanted the same way as Israel and Hamas and Palestine. We're now getting to see who people really are. If you know what I mean? Like you're going, Oh my mm-hmm. God, these people are really showing their hand. Um, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmore, many of these people, certain, Lori Lightfoot, many many on the left, jumped at the opportunity to seize control over their populace. And they did it immediately, which meant they wanted to do it all along. Now, show me Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis showed us who he was as well. He did not want to do this. So what Gavin Newsom showed me was let's just say you thought to yourself, um, I'm going to have a uh, a fire drill at my house. Um, I'm not going to tell my wife. I'm just going to see how she reacts when I set the smoke detector <laughs> off. And you did a fire drill and you set the smoke detector off. And your wife ran upstairs, grabbed her jewelry box, ran downstairs, knocked over one of the kids, pushed away the other kid who was standing in front of the door, ran out the front door, and slammed it shut behind her. And then you thought, well, that was just a drill. (laughs) But I at least know who this woman is now. I learned something. She didn't gather the kids together. She didn't say, you go first, I'll stay here. She didn't run for the box of baking soda or the fire extinguisher. I got to see who she was. And COVID was a fire drill for Gavin Newsom. His first impulse is to shut everything down. And by the way, he'll go to SoFi Stadium, take a picture with Magic Johnson and not wear a mask. That's no problem. But he'd like you arrested if you don't wear your mask. Okay, I got to see who he is.
1: And finally, just a few thoughts. Earlier this week, I played a clip about 17 minutes of Lai. and the people responsible for this, the wanton slaughter of men, women, and children. Imagine all the men, women, and children who had no weapons. There was only one single weapon found in the entire area. The Viet Cong were not there. But they saw that these people, they went into their huts, saw there was no weapons in the huts. These people were working in the fields. They represented no threat to anyone. And yet they took them in groups and tied them up. One group was so large, over 100 people, they just let them into a water drain ditch. And there, uh, this uh, Lieutenant Kali uh, said that they're all going to be killed. In fact, he opened his clip and ran it through. It was on automatic. And then they went through and made sure everyone was dead by additional shots. This was photographed. The dead bodies were photographed. Because one of the people there was an official government photographer. But a lot of the photographs he took on his private camera so that these could, those couldn't be confiscated. We didn't have any reporters there. But everywhere you looked, people were just going crazy. And why did I play that clip? To show you that now we're standing in judgment of Palestinians. We're not talking about pro-Hamas Palestinians, just normal Palestinians who've been living for a long time, decades, under apartheid conditions. Not my words, the United Nations' words, South Africa's President's words. Uh, words, and other Amnesty International b- doctors Out borders And now we don't even have hospitals operating. They've been shut down, bombed, and all against international laws. So, one of the best public relations uh, promoters in the world is Israel. I want to see the Israeli people live long and healthy lives, as they deserve, after all. They have gone through pogrom after pogrom, including the worst of it all, and the millions upon millions of Jews killed uh, in the Second World War. And that's unfortunate, and that's a tragedy. At the same time, a tragedy is 2.5 million people, in about 2.3 to 2.5 million, in Gaza. Gaza's small. It's the size of Detroit, or twice the size of Manhattan, it's one of the most heavily populated centers in the world. And uh, they have no Air Force. They have no, they have no uh, satellites. They don't have no Navy. And they don't have the state-of-the-art intelligence or sophisticated weapons. And yet, the average person there cannot leave the enclosure where they live. And none of the old buildings that were blown up in 2008, 2014, none of those have been rebuilt. So people have to go around rubble. The conditions there are horrendous and subhuman. If you put the average pro-Israeli citizen in Gaza and ask them, live here for one month, eat the food they eat, drink the water they drink, and just see how does that feel they would have a different perspective, but they're not given that perspective. When Sean Hannity is banging the drums louder than anyone else in the United States for war, and also war with Lindsey Graham saying war against Iran, that's genocidal. If we couldn't win in Afghanistan, and we couldn't win, in, uh, for example, in Vietnam, do you really think that we're going to go up against Iran with 90 million people? One of, the most, uh, well, one of the most prepared companies, countries in the world, three times the size of Iraq, and we're going to win? We're not going to win. And that leaves only one option, the doomsday option, where it's clear that Israel would use nuclear weapons. And again, it would all be justified. You'd have the apologists coming forward saying, well, yes, some people died, but now we got rid of the terror. How did our war on terror go? Did we get rid of all the terrorists? Didn't we actually support and weaponize and give money to ISIS when they were used to try to destroy Assad in Syria? Yeah. And the Mujahideen? Yeah. And Al-Qaeda? So we have lost the war on poverty. We've lost the war on terror. We've lost the war on drugs. We've lost every war. So why should we continue? And yet there are those in the government, state level, local level, and federal level, who say, here's a blank check, you tell us how much to write, and we'll write it, without questioning the reality of what we're creating. I just want people to see that I want the Palestinians to be able to be free and live the lives they deserve, and I want to see the Israelis be free and live the lives they deserve. I want to see those who directed Hamas to be held accountable for the deaths they've created, and I want to see everyone in Israel who participated in these genocides held accountable but for the vast majority of people, they don't want war, they don't want, they don't want conflict, they want peace. Who doesn't? We just have to understand we can't keep going with this or way and we want peace, but we, we want war also, where truth is now a lie, and a lie is now a truth. Just something to think about. In any case, enjoy your day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Have a nice day, everyone. the one
4: I've got, ain't no woman like the one I've got, ain't no woman like the one I've got, every day the sun comes up around her, she can make the birds sing